let me invite you to go ahead and have a seat, but let's just continue in an attitude and heart of prayer and thanksgiving. I love that song. I love the fact uh, that it reminds us that even when we don't see it or feel it, God's at work. And in this last week, just in the life of our church, let me just give you several things that we've been praying for. We've had a young lady who had to have an emergency C-section and uh, deliver her baby early, and it was really touch and go for some time, and so we diligently and just prayerfully as a staff just continue to lift her and lift the baby up and seeing God work in that situation has been so exciting yet remindful of the power of prayer and the importance of prayer for one another. We've had people in the last few weeks have just been going going through some heavy and weighty things in their life and just the things that nobody desires to go through nor wants to go through but sometimes the reality of sin and this broken world in which we live puts us in the midst of situations that we never planned on, never thought of being in, but yet crying out to the Lord for Him to make a way in the middle of it. And so what I want to do this morning, just as we begin, because one of the important things that we do together corporately as the body is bearing one another's burdens, as the Scriptures tell us. And one of the best ways that we can do that is through praying for one another. And I just want to give you the opportunity this morning, whether your need might be physical whether your need might be spiritual, whether it might be an emotional or mental struggle that you have or with someone that you know. But let me just invite you, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you would just stand up for a moment if you have great need this morning. So don't be afraid in this place, but we just want to go to the Lord on your behalf and and lift you up. Thank you for the honesty in the room. And let's just have a moment corporately together as we, we don't know all the needs of everyone who's standing and even some of us who are sitting, but what we do know is that we've got a God in heaven, as we've just sung, is truly a way maker and a miracle worker and has the ability to work in each and every one of these situations. So would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you today confessing that God, indeed, we are a people of great need, but God, you are our provider. Father, we believe the words that we've sung together collectively this morning that You are indeed a way maker. That, Father, You're a miracle worker. Father, when life seems so dark and hopeless, You're a light in the midst of that. Father, we confess today that we find ourselves sometimes in situations that it seems like You're not aware. It seems like You're not working. And so, God, would You increase the faith in our hearts today to believe it trust you that you're working even when we don't see it or when we feel it. And Father, regardless of what the needs of this room might be, Father, I pray that you would work each individually in a very supernatural way. Father, I pray that you would touch the lives of those who are in physical need. Father, that you would bring about a miraculous work in healing. Father, I pray that in certain situations where where it seems like there's death, that God, You would bring life in the midst of that. Father, for those who are hurting, maybe the effect of relationships, or Father, just emotional struggles that we can find in the reality of this broken world, God, would You be an ever-present comfort? Father, would You speak clearly words of truth and love into the hearts and lives of those who have gathered here today? Father, for relationships that might be struggling, God, would You provide a healing touch and and prove that, Father, there's a way forward even when it seems like there might not be. 
God, would you have your way in a very supernatural, providential way in the lives of your people. And God, may we have testimonies to share of your faithfulness, of your goodness, of your healing, of your power. And Father, may we never be slow to share, but God, always quick to give you praise and honor and glory for what's taken place. Now, Father, we ask today if you would bless the preaching and the teaching of your word. Father, may it fall on hearts that are receptive. Father, hearts that are willing to be obedient. And Father, may we see fruit a hundredfold in the lives of your people. We ask these things in the name of our perfect Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, let me invite you to open it up to Luke chapter 9. Uh, if you've spent any time at all in church or maybe as a kid and 20,000 people that had gathered this day because the gospel accounts record the fact that there were 5,000 men who were there, uh, which means that if you were to kind of take that number and extrapolate it a little bit based on the women, the possibility of children that would have been there, then we know that this number can get far greater than that. Just to give you a little bit of idea of what this number would look like mathematically would probably be what we call now the pay.com center. Uh, if it were filled, would just kind of tell you the number uh, of the crowd that would have been gathered there on this particular day. And what we're going to see happen is a miracle that interestingly enough is one of only two miracles that all of the gospel writers record. And so it's interesting that as you read through the gospel narratives and you think about all the ways that they taught about Jesus and all the stories that we know about Jesus, there's only two miracles that all four of them record together. One is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we studied a couple weeks ago on Easter as we celebrated the fact that Jesus overcame sin and death and the proof that he was able to fully absorb the penalty and wrath of our sin and truly defeat death and give us victory over sin is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And so we looked at that miracle. The second is this, the feeding of the 5,000. And it's very interesting to me that as you think about all the miracles that Jesus performed, matter of fact, John would tell us so many miracles that they couldn't even be recorded in all of the volumes that we have, that all of the gospel writers hone in on this one. And so for whatever happened in this moment, all four of them felt like this is a moment that people need to hear about. This is a moment that people need to see that this clearly displays the power and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about it, I don't want you to automatically dismiss the fact that you know this story well, because it seems like those are the moments that we get ourselves in trouble. Because here's what I know, that regardless of how familiar you might be with something in the Bible, there is still great truth. There's great treasure there that if we're sensitive and open and we'll listen, there's something new that we can learn from that, something new that we can glean from that. And God wants to speak into our hearts and lives. And so my hope today is just to kind of walk through the narrative of this story. And again, you're going to be familiar with with it, but I want us just to think and ponder a little bit about what's transpiring and what indeed is this telling us about the Lord Jesus Christ. A little quick, simple side note is a great way to read the Bible as you're, as you're just going through it is just to ask ourselves at the end of every time we read it, what is this teaching me about God? 
What is something that I can take away from this story, from this text, from, from whatever it is or who, whatever author I'm reading to say, what is this indeed telling me about the God that we serve? And if we do this, I think it's going to tell us a lot about Jesus and who He is. And so with that in mind, at the beginning of Luke chapter 9, remember Jesus sent the 12 out. Basically, He sent them out as missionaries. He sent them out as apostles to go, to heal, to proclaim the kingdom of God, to do the work that Jesus has been doing in his ministry. And as we said, this kind of set the tone for the disciples of what was going to happen later on that day that Jesus ascends into heaven and he leaves his disciples with a very clear mission and message. They're there to bear testimony, to bear witness to all that they've seen Jesus do, all that they've heard him teach, and to remember that he's going to be with them always, even to the end of the age. And so with that in mind, let's look at what he says here in verse 10. When the apostles return. Now, it's interesting, we're going to stop there for just a moment, that as you read through the narratives, the twelve get a couple of different titles. Sometimes they're referred to as the twelve disciples, right? And basically the word disciple means a a student who follows a teacher. And so uh, at times they're going to be referred to as a group of disciples who are learning. They're they're following Jesus around. And probably the uh, the most beneficial way of teaching is apprenticeship. And so what are these 12 men doing? For for years of their life, they're following Jesus around and they're watching Him teach. They're watching Him do. They're basically getting hands-on life lesson of what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Luke at different times is going to refer to them as apostles. And the word apostles literally means sent ones. And so what he's saying now is these sent ones, these ones who have gone out and done the work of the Lord, they've returned and they've reported to Jesus all that they had done. He took them along and withdrew privately to a town called Bethsaida. Now, if we put together the four gospel accounts, one of the things that the gospels are going to point out, I believe it's the gospel of Mark, says that that he takes them away for a time of rest, basically a time of Sabbath. And Jesus knew all too well the effect, the toll that ministry would take on him. And so remember, Jesus is constantly giving of himself. Jesus is constantly listening to the needs of people. Jesus is constantly battling evil spirits. Jesus is constantly healing disease. Jesus is constantly everywhere he goes, teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And this group of men have been sent out on mission for the Lord, and they've come back. And one of the things that Jesus knows is they need rest. And so he takes them away privately. He wants to get them away from the crowds. Why? So they could have what we would refer to as a sabbatical, a Sabbath, just a time to refresh themselves. And one of the things that I think this would speak to us in ministry is that we need to know that at times it's wise for us the Sabbath. It's time for us to take a break. And God has designed it for whatever reason in His plan, uh, as He modeled for us in the, in the seven days of creation, that six days He created, the seventh day that He rested, that wasn't for because God was taxed, but he was setting an example for mankind. One of the Ten Commandments is what? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And I think one of the lessons that we need to take away from that is that we as the people of God need to understand the importance of rest. And I would tell you that in a culture today that prides itself on busyness, one of the things that we are terrible at is understanding the need that we have for Sabbath rest. A time to stop, and not just to cease from work, but a time to reflect on the Lord, a time to make Him a priority, a time to stop from the busyness. And if you're one of those people who brag about the busyness of your schedule all the time, uh, one of the things that I would tell you is that doesn't line up really well biblically. 
If seven days a week you keep yourself running to, to, to the gills and, you, and you're proud of that because you think it speaks to, to value or maybe just look at all that I do, well, the Bible would say, well, guess what? You're out of alignment. And one of the reasons that I think we have so much stress and frustration and, 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 and depression and some of these other mental issues that we struggle with is because we have forgotten what the Bible says, that we're a people who are made to rest. And sometimes we need to be all right with that. Now, I would just say this at the same time, if you're one of those guys that wants to like rest six days, the Bible also says we're called to work, right? And there's a healthy theology of work in the Bible. And so before you're one of those guys who are like lazy, and you're like looking at your wife saying, see, I told you I need to rest. She's like, yes, you rest seven days a week. He just said one day a week. And it's not that I want to sit here and prescribe for you, but the Bible also gives us a healthy theology of work, lest we use Sabbath and rest as a reason to be lazy and unfruitful. That being said, verse 11, when the crowds found out, they followed him. Now, it's interesting, if you read other gospel accounts, he's trying to get them away. The crowds figure out where they're going, and it says they ran through the towns and village in order to beat them there. And so the rest isn't going to really happen the way that they wanted it to. And this seems to be the MO of Jesus' ministry, right? Everywhere he goes, every place he stops, he is continually bombarded by the crowds. He's continually, they're waiting for him there, wanting them to meet his need or tell them their problem. And let me just tell you this, if you're a person who works with people a lot, people can be taxing. And it's not that even you don't care or, or don't love them, but just the toll that it takes to be mentally there and emotionally there and to provide what it needs for people. And any of you who are in the industry of working with people all the time, you know exactly what I'm talking about, that while you love them, they can be taxing. And so you would think that Jesus knows his disciples need rest and that he gets there and the people have beat him there, that he would just be like, you know what, guys, give us a break. But that's not what he does. Hey, look here, it says this, he welcomed them. So here he shows up, they beat him there. The disciples aren't going to probably get all that rest that they thought they were going to get. They're probably like, Jesus, just send them away. And Jesus welcomes them and they're like, here we go again. Just another day in the life and the time of Jesus Christ. And I think one of the things this speaks volumes to us about is this, that any time that we're involved with ministry, let me just tell you this, I'm not talking about vocational ministry all of us who are born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are called to be ministers. One of the things that the Bible tells me as a pastor that I'm called to do is Ephesians 4.12 that tells me that I'm to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And guess what that means? That one of my responsibilities is to equip you. Why? Because you don't just hire ministers to do ministry right here, around here. We hire ministers, if you want to use that term, to equip you to do ministry. And if you're a minister, which we all are, if we're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, here's what it means. We've got to be okay with being inconvenienced. That ministry doesn't work on a convenience schedule. That inevitably, there are times in your life that you're going to be inconvenienced and will need to be inconvenienced because of the gospel. And here's a moment that would have been very convenient for Jesus and his disciples to say, you know what, we're tired, give us a break. But here the crowds show up and the Bible tells us that Jesus welcomed them. Matter of fact, if you read a couple of other gospel accounts, it points out the fact that he welcomed them. Why? Because he had compassion on them. And one of the things that Mark points out is he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He looked into the heart and the need of their life and said, oh my, this is a group of people who are shepherdless. 
My heart burns for them. My stomach churns for them. And therefore, I'm willing to be inconvenienced, which seems to be the MO of Jesus' entire life. And here they come, and He welcomes them. Why? Because He had compassion on them. Now look at what happens. He welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed healing. Now, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but one of the things that I want to point out, because the Bible contends to say this over and over again, that the primary focus of Jesus' mission when He was here on earth was to proclaim the kingdom of God. The primary focus, outside of the fact that Jesus came to fulfill what the gospel is by giving His life as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the primary function of Jesus' ministry was to proclaim the kingdom of God. Everything else that he did was a side note to validate his message, to prove his divine authority. Why? Because as we've said before, if Jesus would have healed their broken body but not healed their soul, he did nothing for them. If Jesus were to fed this entire large group of people, as we're going to see here in a moment, but sent them away spiritually hungry, he did nothing for them. And one of the things that we've always got to remember as people who are called by God to do ministry is not only are we having to be willing to be inconvenienced, but secondly, we got to make sure we understand what the primary focus of the ministry is. It is to proclaim the kingdom of God. Filling every belly within the greater metro area is only as good as our ability to proclaim the kingdom of God to people. Putting shoes on the feet of every impoverished child in our school system is only as good as our ability to proclaim the kingdom of God to people. Why do I say that? Because we could meet every physical need that a person has, but if we don't try our best to meet the spiritual need that exists inside their soul, we've missed out on what the primary need of humanity truly is. And so Jesus welcomes them. He speaks to them about the kingdom of God and He heals those who needed healing. Now look at verse 12. Late in the day, so it's, it's getting late afternoon time, the twelve approached Him and said, send the crowd of w- away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging because we are in a deserted place. You give them something to eat, He told them. We have no more than five loaves and two fish, they said, unless we go and buy food for all of these people. For about 5,000 men were there. Then he told his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Now, as we look at the disciples in this moment, I think there's a couple of things that we can look at. One is some negative things from them. The other is some positive things from them, all right? The first negative thing that I would point out is I find it very interesting that the disciples always feel the need to tell the divine Son of God what needs to happen. And this, and this isn't just like in one place, but you're going to find that the disciples will often get together. They've had a committee of some sort. They kind of come to a conclusion. And then they're going to go to the divine, sovereign Son of God and say, now this is what you need to do. And so they're making this grave error again by walking up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, it's getting late in the afternoon. Uh, we're, we're checking our agenda and clocks, which means that we're not far from supper time. We're in a deserted place where there's absolutely nothing to eat. There's men here. There's women here. There's children here. 
they're going to need something to eat, so why don't you send them off? That way they can either go home or they can go to the villages, uh, but they're going to need to find something to be able to eat. Now, you might say, well, what's wrong with that? Because here's one of the lessons that you and I always got to remember. We don't get to tell God what to do. Okay? And this is hard for some of us because your whole life is about telling everybody what to do. And, and one of the things that you and I have always got to remember is we don't get to tell God what timetable we need to be on, how things need to happen, when they need to happen. A better approach might be is Jesus, I don't know if you're aware of it or not because you've been really busy, but it's getting late in the afternoon. And we're concerned that these people here have really gotten hungry and that they're not going to have anything to eat out here. So what would you like for us to do about it? But they already make up their mind the solution or the, or the problem that they have. And now they're acting on it. Now, let me just give you a couple of, of positives about the disciples. All right. The first one is this. They're aware of people in their needs. And so I want to pat them on the back for that. Right. Because it's easy for you and I to go through a day of busyness and all of the things around us and not even to think about other people, but at least they have a moment where they're looking at the crowds and saying, okay, it's getting late in the day, we're in a deserted place, there's nothing to eat out here, and so we have men, but of course women and children, and Jesus, we need to be mindful about them because they don't have anything to eat and there's no way that we can feed them. And so before I want to rain on their parade too much... I want to say this, it's better than some of us because anytime selfish human beings think about other people, that's a win, right? And so at least in their mind that they're aware that there's people around and there's a need for the people. And let me just point this out to you because sometimes we'll go through a full day of our life, maybe even weeks and months, surrounded by people not even aware that they have a need. And one of the things that you and I need to be mindful of is that where God has put us, where God has placed us, and rather than just looking at our own life with our own agenda, with our own set of needs and our own set of problems, that there are people out there in the world who have needs, and God's called us to be there to try to meet those needs. So how aware are you? Do you make it through a day without ever thinking about anybody else, or do you only think about you? Do you make it through a day concerned about what's going on in somebody's life? Or is everything that you think about just really what is concerning you? And so this goes along with the willingness to be inconvenienced. If you're going to be inconvenienced, you have to be aware of others and think about others. Here's the second thing that I want to kind of give them a little bit of props on. They tried to find a solution, it seems like. Now, why would I say that? Well, the first one is this. They realized we don't have enough money to, to, to buy all of these people food. And that might have been an easy uh assessment to make, but as you look through the other accounts and put it together, at least they're saying, all right, uh, matter of fact, two different accounts say that not 200, 200 denarii won't, won't fit and make, makes us wonder and believe maybe that's how much they had in their treasury, 200 denarii. So they sat down together and said, how much money do we have? And someone said 200 denarii. And they're like, no way we can afford to, to buy all, all the, these people food. Like, like we can't call Uber Grubhub, none of those places are going to DoorDash. You're not going to be able to bring anything to us. And even if they could, we don't have the money for it. And it seems as if they looked around the crowd because they've come up with what? A few little biscuits, loaves, and some fish. So quickly they say, and this is all that we have around here. Like, like they, no one brought enough food for us to pull it together and have the first potluck. We don't have enough. And so at least they're trying to make 
a solution to the perceived problem. But here's the problem for most of us when we think in terms of solution and problems. We only see it with man's eyes, not with God's eyes. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. The problem's there, right? And, and, and every day in life, guess what? Life is filled up. Problems. And the thing that we're most guilty of is assessing the problem and trying to find a solution for the problem based on our limited ability to see. And what they didn't see right in front of them was the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the sovereign miracle worker of all creation who possibly had a solution greater than anything that they could come up with. Now, now this is what we do as humans, right? We're presented with a problem. And the moment we see that problem, some of us do one of two things. There's two types of people in the world, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced. There's those who complain about problems, and there's those who seek to find solution for problems. The majority of people complain, right? That's just what they do. It's just how they live. It's just how they roll. So the majority of the population sees a problem, and instantly they complain. They want to blame. They want to whine. They want to cry. And then there are those people who will then say, all right, well, well it's not a good deal, but, but let's seek to find a solution. That's not a bad thing. Here's the problem for us, though, is we're limited on our ability to, to present a solution for a problem. And so this happens all the time in our families' lives, in the life of the church, and just our, our, our ebbs and flows of life, is every day there's a problem. But here's our first problem, is that we tend to look through it with our natural eyes and seek to find a natural solution, not understanding that there is a God there who's capable of far more than we could think, ask, or believe that He's capable of. And so in one sense, give them props. They see the problem, they're searching for a solution, on the other hand, though, you've got to say, guys, don't you get it? Remember who you're with. That this isn't a problem for him. This man has the ability to, to cause fish to be right where he wants them to be. So, I mean, if Jesus wanted, he could have walked over to the sea and just caused all this group of fish to show up. We've already seen Jesus do something like that. I mean, we've seen Jesus do unbelievable things, but it doesn't dawn on them for an instant to think maybe God has a solution greater than what we can come up with. And so Jesus says, oh, boys, boys, boys. That's a paraphrase. <laughs> Have the group sit down in about 50 each. Now look at what happens in verse 15. They did what he said, had all of them sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish. Looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them. Now, before I move on, here's a great little question. Where did they get the loaves, right? Where did they come from? And we have another gospel account that tells us a little boy there had, had, had a small thing of fish. And, and graduates, I was thinking about you this week as I was preparing this. And, and I think it's one of the things that's always exciting for a church body to see is young men and women grow up in the life of the church. And here's where I want to give you great hope because life's intimidating. And if you think right now you got the word world by the tail, uh, that'll shift on you at some point. But that's a good place to be. It's a good place to be when you're in over your head. You want to know why? Because it's in those moments that we really rely on the Lord. So those of you who are about to graduate, let me just give you a little life lesson. Jesus takes this little boy's lunch and does great things with it. And so right now, some of you are terrified. You're like, what am I going to do in the world? Let me just tell you this. If you're willing to submit your life to Jesus, He'll take the little bit you have and do great things with it. But you've got to be willing to let it go. 
You know, I was thinking about you seniors this week, and I thought about this little boy. He could have been like, hey, I was the only one who prepared a lunch, so I'm not hungry. I mean, the rest of you might be hungry, but, but I'm going to be fine. I mean, I'm going to sit here with my fish and my, my, my rolls, and I'll be good till tomorrow. So I don't know what the rest of you all are all looking at me for. But he said, Lord, I don't have much, but, but you can have it. And, and his willingness to give, Jesus uses it for great things. And seniors, just know this, that, that your life right now, as, as small as it might seem, if you're willing to submit it to the Lord Jesus, He can really do great things with it. That being said, He took them, looked up to heaven, He blessed it, He broke it. So, so the question is, alright, what, what's Jesus doing here with this, with this food? Like, is He casting some spell on it? I mean, how, what, what's He going to do here that's going to cause this to work? And I think the picture simply is this. Jesus was doing what any normal, reverent Jewish man would do before a meal. He would gather His family together and they would take the food that He would have. He would lift it up and He would offer it. The word bless here can literally mean give thanks. And so basically, He's acknowledging God. I'm giving you thanks for what we have. He would pray accordingly. He would break it and then distribute it to his family. And so I don't think he's doing anything you know, uh, special here as far as just his approach. I think he's basically saying, all right, God, we're, we're thankful. You provided, which seems odd considering the amount of people and, and what he has. But then he just begins to take it and keep giving. And so the disciples, remember, they're in groups of 50. And so the disciples are, are very much acting like deacons in this moment, right? They're, they're, ta- they're servants. They're taking this food and they're just distributing it to the families who have gathered around, but it just doesn't run out. And the question is like, like how is this happening? How is it coming? And, and I don't know other than this is the only thing that I can think. The Creator is creating. Right? Isn't that, isn't that the God that we serve? He's a Creator. Out of nothing He speaks and things come to be. And so Paul makes it very clear in Colossians 1, right? That Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. But one of the things that he points out in that passage is that all things exist because of Him, through Him. He's the Creator of all things. And I think Jesus is just doing what God does. The provider is providing. The Creator is creating. And just there by His divine power and will... Food is just being multiplied to the point, and I I love how this happens here, to the point that everyone ate and was filled. Now you might say, well, well, that's great. What's the significance of this? This word filled here literally could be translated satisfied. It could be translated satiated. Basically, it could, could, could translate gorged. It was basically a word that was used to describe an oxen or an animal that would just eat and eat and eat till it was full and just keep on eating. And so basically these people have taken what Jesus has provided for them and it's not like He just gave them a snack so they could make it home to have something better to eat. He provided a feast to the point that everyone in that crowd there that day ate to the full. Ate till they couldn't eat anymore. And I think there's a spiritual lesson here, right? That, that what Jesus provides will always leave us satisfied, satiated. It will leave us full. It's interesting that what the world offers never tends to do that. Think with me, if you will, to, and I say this a little bit loosely, the great Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger, right? What, what was one of the, the famous songs, maybe one of the truest songs ever written? I can't get no satisfaction. Though I try, though I try, though I try, I can't get no satisfaction. Now, some of you right now are just wanting to bust out 
you, weren't, you didn't sing during worship time, but you're about to sing right now, right? Because you're like, man, now you're speaking my language. Shame on you. But nonetheless, that, that's the anthem of the world, right? We try, we try, we try to find something that fills the void, and it fills it for a moment. It fills it for a season. But guess what? The very nature of it tells us that we're going to need more of it, which is why it's so foolish and silly for us to look to this world for anything that will truly satisfy If you think there's something in the world that will satisfy, let me encourage you to go read the book of Ecclesiastes and let the world's wealthiest man, greater than his time than Elon Musk, explain to you that regardless of what he's tried to buy, what he's tried to procure, what he's tried to build, every day he's realized vanity of vanity, meaningless, meaningless, it's all meaningless. And here's another little side note for you seniors whom I love, is that you're going to try to find a career, most of you, on the amount of money that it can pay you. Because in your mind, if I'm paid well, I'm going to be happy. Can I tell you this? That is a pipe dream at best. Because no amount of money, no career, no lifestyle, no family is ever going to be able to fill you. You're like, well, if I could just go on vacations, you want to know what the problem with that is? Ask people who go on a lot of vacations, why do they keep going on more? Because it didn't fill them. Did it make them happy for a moment? Yeah. Did it ultimately satisfy? Well, of course it didn't, or they wouldn't have to go on another one. Were the people that invest their lives trying to have more and more, and I'm not saying don't do well, I would tell you use the gifts that God has given you to the capacity that you're able to use them, but use them for the glory of God because there will be far more satisfaction found in this life doing something that the world might seem as meaningless and futile than there would be a thousand years doing what the world thinks is the most uh, best way for you to make money and to be powerful because there's far greater joy being obedient and walking with the Lord than there ever is by doing things the world's way. And people who taste of the goodness of God are people who are satisfied. What does Paul say? Godliness with contentment is great gain. You know how few people in this world are ever really content? The majority. Why? Because they're looking to something else to fill the void and the missing in their heart and life. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Why? If you can get to that place in life that you're content, and here's, what you want, here's something you need to grasp, and I'm dadding on you for a moment, but this is for all of us in the room. If you're not going to be content with little, you'll never be content with a lot. It's just never going to happen. Contentment has nothing to do with what you have. Contentment has everything to do with you trusting and believing that what God has given you is enough. And if you're not content with a little right now, don't you ever think that you're going to be content with a lot? Because some of you are just like, well, if I just get here, or I just get this promotion, I just get this raise, I just get this amount of money, I just get this kind of lifestyle, I'll be content. And the reality is, no, you won't, for the very same reason you're not content right now. But if we learn to allow God to satisfy us, now all of a sudden we're able to put life in a proper perspective. Interestingly enough, when you read John's account of the story, It's after this story that Jesus begins to give some of the hardest teaching that he ever gave and disciples begin to walk away. The crowds show back up a day later and Jesus says, you're not here because you want what my father has to offer. You're here because I fed you. 
And Jesus now begins to go on this whole teaching about how you want real satisfaction, you want real life, you really want to be filled, then you're going to have to eat of me. Eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. And they're like, what on earth is he talking about now? But the point that he's trying to drive home is, listen, you're after the wrong thing. Some of you are just following me because I can make your health better. And that's not why you need the Son of Man. Some of you are after me because I just fed you the greatest feast that you've ever had and you want some more of it. And that's not a reason to seek after the Son of Man. Some of you are after me just because you want to see what else there is that I have to offer. But here's what I'm here to tell you. I've already given you the greatest thing that I can. It's myself. Now do you want some of me? And they're like, this is hard. This is odd. We just want more food. We just want better healing. And so thank you, Jesus, but no thanks peace out. And let me just tell you this, I see this happen all the time. And if you're here looking for answers today, and you're here because you have need, praise God for that, because God uses need in our hearts to draw us to Him. But if you're looking for something else other than Jesus, the greatest satisfier of your needs, we've got nothing to sell, nothing to offer. Why? Because that, that's it. And all the time I see people who, who want Jesus. Why? Because they think Jesus can meet some mystery need in their heart and life. But they don't want Jesus for Jesus. And they tend to walk away. So Jesus looks at His disciples and said, you're going to follow them? And they're like, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You're it, Jesus. we got nowhere else to go because we don't have an answer other than you. And let me just tell you this, because this is the way that God works. Those of us who will taste of the goodness of God given to us in Jesus Christ and will truly trust and believe that He's enough will always be satiated, will always be satisfied, will always be full. Why? Because that's the promise that He makes us as He fills us with Himself. And so there's a spiritual lesson being taught in the midst of Jesus filling their physical needs. He's proclaiming to them that their spiritual needs are capable of being met as well. Verse 17, everyone ate and was filled. They picked up 12 baskets of leftover pieces. Now, it doesn't say 12 baskets. Oh, yes, it does say 12 baskets here. So, so in, in, several of our, in, in a couple of our Gospels, we get just baskets left over, and in a couple we get, get 12. And so I've always wondered, like, like why, why 12 baskets? How big were the baskets, right? I mean, it's like 12 bushel baskets. That was kind of what I always thought in my mind as a kid. I don't know if someone told me that or what. I just kind of imagined them like picking up 12 big wicker laundry baskets full of fish and carrying them around, which I don't know why I thought that. And then I've always wondered, like, does it have something to do with the 12 tribes of Israel? Is it something to do with the 12 apostles? And, and then it kind of dawned on me through studying that, that I think this is just a sign not only of Jesus' divine power and able to provide for this amounts of people, but I think it's also a sign of His perfection that He provides just the right amount. And let me tell you why I think that. The average Jew in that day, male, would carry a little basket with him. We call them lunchboxes. I remember my Star Wars lunchbox, my He-Man lunchbox. I wish I still had those because I remember the first time in kindergarten I came. But remember, they used to have those terrible thermoses that never like sealed. And so you inevitably would get there and your sandwich was pink because your red Kool-Aid like leaked out. It was always a terrible feeling, but at least the lunchbox looked cool. 
And a Jewish man would carry a lunchbox with him. And the reason being is that he would never want to eat in a Gentile town on a village. And it wasn't like today where there's just restaurants and stores everywhere. And so he would always want to make sure he had some food with him. And especially if he was on a journey, would never want to eat food that a Gentile would offer him lest it be unclean. And so I think quite simply, why are there 12, 12 baskets? I think it's 12 lunchboxes that Jesus had made for his disciples. It's full, it's left over. And you might say, well, why does that matter? I think it just speaks to the divine perfection of of Jesus. Here he is making food for all of these crowds and his divine providence and sovereignty. He knows the exact amount of food to make and stop to where everybody's filled. And now there's 12 left for his disciples to have a, a lunchbox to take. And you might say, well, is that really significant? Oh, I think it is. Because I think it speaks to divine perfection. And Jesus knows exactly how to meet our needs. Exactly. To the last little basket. His disciples left that day. And, and I don't know if they got to eat in the middle of it. And they were so busy serving. And they're like, what are we going to eat? And Jesus is like, oh, I've got 12 baskets for you right here. We're going to eat on the road. Where if they did eat, and Jesus just said, hey guys, I know you're going to get hungry later. So, so I got a little bit of leftover for you. I mean, this is the first leftover box, right? Jesus drew a little smiley face like some good waiters do on it and had their names on it. And they're just like waiting for him. I mean, th- this is really where we get a lot of our stuff the Bible. But none, none, all that being said... It just speaks to the divine power, providence, and perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when He meets a need, He meets it to the fill, and He gives you exactly what you need in that moment. And guess why He does that? That way you trust Him again tomorrow. Why did uh, God only give the people of Israel manna from heaven for one day, right? Don't save it. If you save it, it rots. Because he was teaching them, you trust me every day. Trust me that when you wake up tomorrow morning, there's going to be enough there. If you hoard it for yourself, it's a sign that you don't trust me. You're, you're trying to collect for your own. You trust that I'm going to provide for you what you need every day. And that's the perfection that the Lord we have operates and how he meets our needs. Now I want us to think. So, so, so we've covered a lot of different, like I think this is one of those stories where there's just a, a lot of fruit to think about. And so I want us just to recap, right? Rest. You need it. Jesus looked at His disciples and said, guys, you need rest. Inconvenience. If you're going to be a minister, which you're called to be, be ready to be inconvenienced. Awareness. You're going to be a minister like God's called you to be? You better start looking around and being aware of the needs of other people. Every day, how mindful are you of who's around you? What's going on in their life? Sometimes we're so concerned with our own problems that we don't even acknowledge the problems of other people. And that's not the way that God's called us to be. Complainer or solution finder? Solution finder is not bad as long as you're looking for a godly solution and believing that God's capable of doing things bigger than what you can do. Some would call me a pragmatist. Some would call me a pessimist. I call myself a realist. Said every pessimist in the room. And sometimes, like, I I weigh out a problem and I'm just like, all right, well, here's the information. Here's logical thinking. 
Here's the solution, and therefore here's the answer. You probably know me well enough now to know I don't have a lot of time for complainers. Why? Because the more you complain, the less time you're taking for me to find a solution. So, so anybody can point out what's wrong. Who's going to figure out what's, how to fix it? Let me tell you where that gets you in trouble. When you with your own eyes try to solve a problem, not factoring into the equation the ability of God to do more than what your logic would tell you. So I can give fault to these 12 disciples, these apostles, but I would be just like them. If we had a staff meeting about the situation, I wouldn't have been like, hey, let's see if Jesus can multiply the fish. I would have just been simply like, hey, send everybody home. Not our problem. I wouldn't say it like that. But I'd be like, it's just math, right? Look at all the people. Look at the little bit of money. Look at the little bit of food. They're just going to have to figure it out. They should have thought about that on their way over here. And yet, you're like, this guy's our pastor. Hey, <laughs> it works good with budgets and numbers. I, pro- I promise you that. What it doesn't take into effect is, Jesus says, I can do more than that. You ever thought about adding me into your equation? And do we figure solutions with the power of God in mind and ever think that God's solution is far greater than what you and I can comprehend? Are we willing to be like that little boy who gives Jesus everything he has and says, you can have it, it's not much, but if you want to use it, you can have it. And then do we believe that Jesus is enough to satisfy? Do you just want what Jesus has to offer? Or do you want Jesus? And let me just tell you this, inevitably you will reach a crisis moment in your life where that will now be forced upon you to decide Jesus, do I just want what you have to offer or do I want you? And let me just tell you how it manifests itself sometimes. You get a diagnosis or a family member gets a diagnosis or a problem comes up and you start saying things like this. That's not fair. I've been obedient. And I followed you and I've done all of these things. Wait a minute, God, that was not in the deal. And here's what you just proved in that moment. Not that it's wrong to worry about the diagnosis. It's that you just said, Jesus, I just wanted you because you can fix my problems. And Jesus says, maybe through this problem, I'm going to give you something greater than you ever thought or hoped. I'm going to give you more of me. Are you okay with that? And it reveals our heart. So I want you to bow your heads. There's not a need that you have today that Jesus isn't capable of meeting. Taking a little boy's lunch and feeding 20,000 people is evidence of that. But let me just tell you this, greater than that, your stomach being full, there is not a need of your soul today that Jesus is not able to meet and will not leave you satisfied. And so this invitation has a lot of levels depending on how the Spirit of God speaks to your heart and life. But let me just tell you what our invitation to you is today that we believe that the Word of God is alive and powerful and has the ability to change your life today. And if you've been listening as the Spirit of God's been working, God has something that He wants you to do. And maybe you need to have a moment where you just come kneel at this altar and confess. Seek the Lord, pray, cry out to Him. And it's not because God's closer to you down here than He is in your seat. It's just because sometimes a change in posture helps us to express how we feel.
Sometimes we need to talk to someone and need somebody to pray with us. And that's why there's people available up here. Sometimes you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and you just say, I need someone else to pray with me. Pray for me. Sometimes you just have a question like, how do I do this? And and that's why we have people available up here, but also people available in the back because sometimes your question is more than a couple minutes. It, It requires a lengthy conversation and we want to provide that for you. And the reason that we want you to share things with us, that a decision that you made on a connect card or any of these things isn't so we can just count numbers. It's because it's an opportunity for us to connect with you and walk with you through whatever you're going through. And so however you feel comfortable expressing, and not only comfortable, however you feel God leading you to express, even more importantly, is what we would ask you to do this morning. So as we sing, as we pray, you use this time to seek the Lord and respond as He's asked you to move. Father in heaven, would you have your way in us today? Father, would you move in the hearts and lives of people, convicting us of sin, convicting us of righteousness? Father, will You help us to know what the next step is for our life. But God, most importantly, may it be with You in mind. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.